Hello and welcome to the Scottish Politics Podcast. My name's David Clegg, I'm the political editor of The Daily Record and your host. It's been an extremely dramatic week in Scottish politics, with a walkout at Westminster and a constitutional crisis that shows no sign of a solution. The SNP are promising to disrupt the journey of the Brexit bill through the Commons and relations between the UK and the Scottish governments are at an all-time low. To discuss this and all the other political happenings today, I have Annie Wells and Ross Greer. Annie is the Scottish Conservative MSP for Glasgow and Ross is a Green MSP for the West of Scotland. Both Ross and Annie joined the Parliament in 2016 and have quickly made a name for themselves. We'll get on to that Brexit chaos in a moment, but first of all, uh, Ross has actually been up to something quite interesting this week. Can you, can you tell us what you've been doing this week, Ross? Yeah, so I'm a member of the British-Irish Parliamentary Assembly, which is one of the bodies that was set up from the Good Friday Agreement. The BIPA Assembly meets a couple of times a year, and we've just met in Sligo in the Republic of Ireland to discuss the impact of Brexit on the peace process, and particularly that very direct impact on the border. So you end up in a very surreal situation. One thing I wasn't expecting to do in this job was to be sitting between Neil Hamilton, now a UK member of the Welsh Assembly, and Paul Given from the DUP, and discuss the peace process. And what was your sense of the atmosphere? Obviously, the Brexit issue is causing a lot of problems with the border in Ireland, and there's been suggestions that it could destabilise the peace process and that it was uh, contrary to the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement. Were those all the issues that were being discussed? Those were the issues that were being discussed, and they've been the issues we've discussed at every meeting of the Assembly since 2016. And there's a real frustration now, particularly on the Irish side, that we've had the same discussion over and over again close to a dozen times now because there hasn't been any meaningful progress on this. Everyone's agreed that there can't be any hardening of the border. Not We talk about this in almost binary terms of, of a hard border or, or a soft border. Any hardening, any difference from where we are now would be contrary to the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement and there's not currently a proposal on the table from the UK government that would actually avoid that and there's a real frustration there. What was what was the chat of the DUP about this? Because obviously they supported Brexit and they've had um, some interesting things to say about how the border issue could be fixed. What, what, what were they saying during this? It's important to generally be diplomatic. The, the, victory, <laughs> the victory here is with, the, with BIPA is that everyone's in the room. The point of this assembly and, and the peace process was it's a victory that everyone's just in the same room and talking. Um, unfortunately, as much as the DUP attend in that they were in Sligo, their representatives were very, very rarely in the room and made almost no contributions to the debate. So I can hand on what, heart what, say what that... What did they do instead then, if they're not... I have genuinely no idea, but they weren't in the room. They, they were in Sligo, they attended, but they were not. They were very rarely in the room, and when they were in the room, they were not contributing to the debate, which is a real frustration because that is a viewpoint that should be represented in the discussions. There were members of the Ulster Unions party there, so political unionism in the North was represented and represented very well by the UUP members who were there. The other side, the Sinn Féin and the SDLP were there, Alliance, etc. Their viewpoints were all very well aired in the room. I can't honestly say what the DUP's view is beyond what I read in the papers because having sat with them for three days, I didn't hear it. They weren't engaging. That's interesting. Uh, Brexit is all obviously causing problems in Ireland, but I think it's clear it's been causing some constitutional problems in Scotland this week as well. It was a very dramatic day in the House of Commons yesterday with the SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford leading a walkout. The I've, I've, I've got a story in the record this morning on UK and Scottish government relations, which generally throughout you know the entire independence referendum period actually continued pretty well on the day-to-day basis. They seem to be at an all-time low as well. So I think we are at a very, very key moment uh, 
Annie, I'll, I'll bring you in at this point. You're a Conservative MSP. Are you concerned that this is looking bad for the Tories? I don't think it is looking bad for the Tories. I mean, I think what we saw yesterday in Blackford walking out is he did put a, a question to the to the Speaker to ask for the members of the bay. Had they not walked out and taken the gang with them, then the marriage debate would have happened and they could have had their, their voices heard. Instead, what we saw was the SNP MPs stand outside the House of Commons and they were standing outside for Scotland and not in the, in the chamber actually getting that emergency debate. Are you upset that the Scottish Parliament has withheld its consent? You, you, you voted, obviously, to give consent, but the Parliament as a whole, there was a majority for withholding consent and that's just made no difference. Do you, do you think that's an acceptable situation? Um, I think when we, when we looked at the, the emergency legislation that was brought forward for consent, we voted democratically as a UK to leave for, uh, the EU with Brexit. So we really need to respect the views of the 17 million people that voted. And yes, look at the Welsh Government, they accepted the deal. The Scottish Government haven't. And that to me only says one thing. It's just a grievance that they've got because they want to bring independence up again and again and again. What did you think of the parliamentary tactics yesterday, Ross? Prime Minister's questions is a pantomime. It's always been a pantomime for, for decades, if not centuries. The fact that the SNP took their role in the pantomime outside, I thought actually just showed a bit of political astuteness. The whole thing is a, is a series of stunts. What they've managed to do, and for all I disagree with a lot of the issues the SNP often bring up uh, in Westminster, actually, in this case... What they've managed to do is take a genuine constitutional crisis, the UK government riding roughshod over 20 years of devolution settlement, and get it to the top of the news across the UK. I can't remember the last time I heard something about devolution in Scotland leading the 6 o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news. That's what they did. They managed to get something that was a genuine crisis, but that the public weren't really aware of. And there are now probably... 10, 20 times as many people who know that there's a problem than did a couple of days ago. Yeah, I think that's it's very interesting because regardless of your view on the issue, on the sharp, shrewd politics of it, it's a story that the press here, the Scottish Parliament have been writing about, but it's been quite a dry issue because you're talking about yeah. fishing quotas and mm. stuff like that. It doesn't necessarily set the blood pumping, but by that bit of theatrics, it, it, it made it a story that was a lot easier to understand that the SNP are angry because uh, Scotland is, is being betrayed. And it's important to remember that it's not just the SNP either, and it's not even just those of us who want independence, which would be the SNP and the Greens. Every party but Conservatives voted to withhold consent in the Scottish Parliament, so our Labour and Liberal Democrat colleagues were with us. That's where you end up with a slightly odd situation of Labour and Liberal Democrat colleagues at Westminster being out of line with their parliamentary groups in Holyrood. But overall, Holyrood is, with the exception of one party, quite united about this. It's not just the Scottish Government or the SNP or even the, the Yes movement. Annie, are you concerned? You, I think I'm right in saying that you came into politics initially because during the independence referendum, your support for the union is that is that correct? Yeah, that's yeah. correct. So, I, I just are you concerned that this could that we're seeing a fraying of the UK? We've talked about the Irish situation, but but also that support for independence could be driven by the way the UK government appears to be ignoring the will of the Scottish Parliament. Is that a concern for you? It's not. It's not a huge concern. It's not the top of my agenda because I really don't think that independence is is what the people of Scotland really want right now. And I think when we look at the, U the UK Parliament and its workings with other devolved administrations, the Welsh accepted the deal, yeah. the Scottish Government didn't. And to me that only ever shows one thing, that 
they're not interested in getting the best for, for Scotland under Brexit. They're not interested in independence. Well, you can you can doubt their motives, but the, the stark facts of it are that the Scottish Parliament as a whole, and it wasn't just the SNP, as, as Ross pointed out, Labour and the Lib Dems didn't give consent either. So it's it's difficult to make it nationalist, nationalist grievance or call it nationalist grievance whenever two unionist parties are, are in the same page, surely? No, absolutely. And I get that as well. But when we look at Brexit, we are democratic. We need to look at what the people voted for. And I know we hear all the time that Scotland didn't vote for Brexit. Had it been a, a Scottish-wide vote, then absolutely you're right. But at the end of the day, it was a UK-wide vote. We need to respect the will of the people. That's what I'm here for. I don't believe independence will, will come of it, but I do think that not taking the deal, not actually having the proper talks with the UK government and actually coming to some conclusion, we're hearing words like power grab and all the rest of it. There's no power grab. There's no power Do you want to explain why you think there is a power grab, Rose? Yeah, well, there is a paragraph because the EU withdrawal bill, the UK bill that we've rejected uh, consent of, includes provisions for the UK government, the UK parliament to rule on our behalf over devolved areas for up to seven years. So these are powers that should be exercised by the Scottish parliament as part of the devolution settlement. And the UK government, the UK Parliament are giving themselves the power to essentially overrule us. It includes the most ridiculous line about consent, that the UK government would consider that the Scottish Parliament has given consent to it taking decisions on our behalf if we explicitly reject consent. So if the Scottish Parliament says, no, you can't do that, this withdrawal bill says that the UK government can treat that as a consent decision and proceed on that basis. No one's definition of consent involves rejecting consent being treated as consent. So that's why we're rejecting this. And it's not about uh, disrespecting the Brexit vote. There are people, I don't want Brexit to happen, there are people who rejected consent. Do you think there's any prospect that Brexit won't happen? Uh, It's absolutely possible and it would be down to the UK government's absolutely incredible level of incompetence and chaos over this. I'd love to think it's because of those who are fighting very hard politically against it. It'll be far more likely if it happens to be down to the incompetence of the UK government. But the withdrawal bill and the issues around devolution, they're not directly related to Brexit and that this isn't about stopping Brexit. Even the people in Scotland who voted to leave the European Union weren't doing it on the understanding that it would take powers away from the Scottish Parliament. In fact, they were told it would give powers to the Scottish Parliament. That was an argument used by the Leave campaign in Scotland, certainly. What about the independence issue then, Ross? I'll stay with you for the the time being. I think it's fair to say that you're quite eager for a second referendum, uh, discussions we've had previously here. Um, How far away from it do you think we are at the minute? It's very hard to judge. I mean, there's never been a period in our modern political history as fluid as this, and fluid is a polite word for completely chaotic. Um, I think there are clearly tectonic plates shifting. In fact, one of them is someone that you know very well, the uh, until recently editor of the Daily Record, uh, Murray Foote, came out just today in favour of independence. That's someone who was an architect, the architect, of the vow that was presented by the UK party leaders in 2014. Never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a stand-up guy, I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah. Um, but Murray's article today about why he does not want to leave his daughters to a UK ruled over by the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, governments held hostage by these extremists who ride roughshod over Scotland's interests and Scotland's expressed will. That was a very powerful article. And I'll happily admit... Polling on independence hasn't significantly shifted. It's still basically the same number of people who would vote yes now as voted in 2014. So we're not sitting on top of a winning majority. But we're only a few points away from it. And we've got a UK government and a huge proportion of the UK parliament who are treating Scotland with absolute contempt. It was Murray that made the point uh, just yesterday that if you look at even UK commentators as well as politicians who are 
literally taking the piss out of Scotland over uh, what we're trying to do to defend a devolution settlement that we overwhelmingly voted for 20 years ago. That's not a strong look. That vindicates the argument that some of us have made for a long time, that the UK political state has no respect at all for Scotland. What do you make of this, Annie? What I would like to know is what powers is getting taken away from the Scottish Parliament? The powers that are being repatriated from Brussels, you look at, say, stuff around state aid, public procurement, a lot of stuff around fisheries, agriculture... Yeah, but they, they, are, they are in the EU at the moment, so they aren't in the Scottish Parliament. And, yes. what, and if we were to have an independent Scotland, would the Greens and the SNP want to do is hand those powers straight back to Brussels? So Absolutely. When we talk about having a power grab, it's not a power grab, because there's no powers actually leaving this parliament as we sit the, the right arg- now. The argument would be that they those particular powers may not, but the portfolio that they fall in with is, is in yeah. the devolution settlement, uh-huh. and therefore they should come to the Scottish parliament yeah, rather than but, to Westminster. And what we're saying is, let's have that period of time where we, Westminster will do that as a whole. And I don't think, when we say power grab at all, it's like, my concern is that, yes, I would like the powers to come straight back, of course I would, but this, that isn't the right way to go about it at the moment. Why not? But what I would say is, why would I want to bring them back to hand them straight back to Brussels? That's what you, you and your party would want to do. Absolutely, because they're best exercised at so that why, level. So why are we having the argument about they should be in Scotland, but you would quite happily hand them straight back to, to Brussels? Because so there's, there's an argument there that you're suggesting that this is better done across uh, multinational uh, cooperation. So if that's going to happen, it would be the UK, UK Parliament ultimately mm-hmm. that would have to do that as far as the UK is concerned, mm-hmm. isn't it? In terms of, well, Annie asked a question about if an independent Scotland would, and that's that's where I want an independent Scotland with a f- seat at the European table because it's constituted completely differently. Scotland's voice isn't heard within the UK. Within the European Union, if Scotland was an independent state, it would have one of the 28 seats at the table. We would have one of the 28 votes and vetoes at a European Council meeting. We would have commissioners as well as MEPs. So our voice would actually be heard on a far more effective level than it is at present. Scotland's interests are consistently sold out by UK ministers in European negotiations. Annie, you voted Remain, didn't you? I did. So are you happy that Brexit's going ahead or would you like to do something to try and stop it or finesse it? I would, I voted Remain, absolutely. I didn't want Brexit to happen. Um, it came as a huge surprise to me in the morning of the vote. Um, but I do think we have to go now and get the best deal that we can for Scotland and the UK and the other devolved um, parliaments as well. Because what we need to do is we need to make sure that we do get the best result. And I know that we hear hard Brexit, soft Brexit, back, back front, soft... Co- but what we need to do is just get the Brexit deal right. And we need to get the Brexit deal right for the Scottish people. And that's why I'm quite disappointed that the Scottish government didn't actually go with their Welsh counterparts and say, right, let us take this deal, let us be part of this. But instead, all I see is backwards and forwards, ping pong, tennis balls, and we aren't actually getting anywhere because the Scottish government have taken themselves out of that position. And we saw that yesterday when they walked out of the chamber as well. Just before we move on to talk about some other things... I'll stay with you, Annie. On the independence referendum issue, do you think there's any conceivable way that with a Conservative Party in power at the UK level that they would grant the second independence referendum? Or will they just block that and block it and block it? I would say what the Prime Minister said the last time it was asked for, now is not the time. We, we were told a generation, let's do the generation. We've got such a lot to do with Brexit at the moment. So at this minute in time, I would say the UK government shouldn't allow a second independence referendum. 
And do you think that could change at, at some point or what would be required for, the, for, for you to feel that it was justified having a second one? The only way I would see it's justified having a second referendum if it was a generation away, the way we did with the, the EU, 40 odd years down the line. We shouldn't be having. We shouldn't be looking at anything like that just now. It's so not for, out 40, forty years, you think, until the next one? I would say that's a generation. Okay, that's interesting. I, that will be. I, one, I should have said this in the introduction, of course, that Ross is the youngest MSP. Second me, what, what age are you now, Ross? 20, just turned twenty-four. Oh, good grief! Oh, I'm just a wee bit older than I, that. I, I sense <laughs> that you would not like to wait forty years for the next referendum. Absolutely not. Not. We're not waiting until I'm heading towards retirement for that point. Um, and the core issue there is about democracy. So surely we all believe that people should get what they vote for. If the Conservatives are proposing that we wait a generation, it's entirely conceivable that at every election to the Scottish Parliament between now and then, let's call it the 40 years that was used, people elect parties from in a majority on platforms of holding another referendum. Are the Tories really saying that the UK government would say no, 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 no to the Scottish people repeatedly electing a majority of MSPs who want a referendum? Because that's what we've got at the moment. A majority of MSPs have already voted to say there should be a referendum and the UK government said no. Another example of Scotland's wishes being cast aside. But if we get to, say, 2021, the next election, and return another majority with a clear mandate for an independence referendum, what right does a UK government have to say that we can't have one? The people will have just asked for one. What I would say there is, why did we, when we voted in 2014, why were we told it was once in a generation? That that's what we were told. That wasn't we on told. the ballot paper, I never no, said that. No, it wasn't in the ballot paper, but I think we've got... A lot, a lot, a lot of people on the S side did, did say that, so I think, I mean... It's, senior it's politicians in the SNP did, yeah, yeah. I'd quite happily say that they shouldn't have said that. And they certainly weren't saying it on my behalf. I've never been a member of the SNP, so they generally don't speak on my behalf. Um, but even if they did say that at that point, surely if you then go into an election campaign with a manifesto saying there should be a referendum and you win that election, you have won a mandate for a referendum. Can you really be told that, oh, well, something you said 10 years ago, we're actually going to have that trump what's in the manifesto that a majority of people just voted for? That's not democracy. You seem to be conceding that it's unlikely there's going to be one before 2021. Do you, are, are you of the view now that you're going to have to successfully get another pro-independence majority in the next Hollywood election to have one? I would very much like there to be an independent referendum before 2021. I'm pragmatic enough to see that it might happen before then. It might not because we have no idea, for example, how many UK governments we're going to go through between now and then. If you ask me to bet, I'd say there'll probably be another UK election before the end of this year. That could change things again. So yes, it is important for those of us who believe in independence to have an eye on the next election and making sure that there's a majority for that. It shouldn't be the only issue at the next election though. We've got some pretty big stuff about health, education, the economy that we should be talking about as well. Well, let's move on to that because First Minister's questions today, both Labour and the Conservatives avoided the constitutional chaos around them and focused a bit more on the bread and butter of, of here. Uh, Ruth Davidson, the Conservative leader, went on a justice issue, but it was actually it was more interested in uh, Richard Leonard, the Labour leader. Uh, he went on standardised testing, and in fact he referred to a story which was in the Daily Record last month about standardised testing for P1 pupils and how some of them have been left in tears over it. Uh, the, 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 question that, the question that Richard Leonard opened with was, can you tell me another word for a hummingbird's beak? which is apparently one of the questions that is asked of P1 children. An answer did not spring to Nicola Sturgeon's mind. It did not spring to my mind as I was watching it, I have to say. Did you have an answer, Ross? <laughs> I was actually following the tweets from Daniel Johnson, another Labour MSP, who was frantically Googling and trying to find the answer. And even Daniel was struggling to do it, so I don't know how we can think five-year-olds would manage. 
I think Bill is the answer, apparently. That uh, sounds about right. Yeah, yeah we'll go with that. I, I, I believe you. I, 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 I found that on the internet. But although that, that, there, there's an element of humour to the way they address that issue, it's actually quite serious because children do seem to be upset by this. I suspect... Anna, you're uncomfortable with standardised testing for P1, are you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we need to look at just getting P1 pupils encouraged and, and feeling that this is school life, this is way forward. We shouldn't be asking ridiculous questions like that, especially when the First Minister couldn't answer it and as Ross, well. Ross, what about you? What's your view on this? Yeah, I'm not long back, actually, from an education committee trip to Finland where they don't do any standardised assessments before the age of 16 and obviously have far better education outcomes than us. And there's a lot of evidence that says that uh, assessing kids like that, formalised assessment like that, is really, really harmful before even the age of something like 12. Um, From memory, Labour were in favour. Labour were a party that pushed for standardised assessments, maybe not from the age of five, but for the principle of it. I think that the whole standardised assessment approach goes against all the evidence about what's in children's best interest. But also, there's a more fundamental point here when we talk about five-year-olds. You shouldn't be starting primary school at the age of five. In most European countries, you start formal schooling at six or seven. Five-year-olds should still be in a a kindergarten play-based education stage because the evidence shows that that results in far better outcomes, both for their formal education achievement, but also for their health and well-being. Nicola Sturgeon famously said that she wanted to be judged on education. We don't hear quite so much about that anymore. I think that's partially because the trouble in the health service and Shona Robeson has kind of became yeah. a lightning rod for attacks on the Scottish government and their uh, looking after of public services. Mm-hmm. Do, uh, what's your feeling on, on how, the, how John Swinney, the Education Secretary, is getting on with his reforms and, and whether he's making progress? I, at the moment, I'm not seeing the progress that was promised when Nicola Sturgeon became First Minister. Education was her number one priority. I don't see that that is any, anywhere happening. And we look at the attainment gap, that's not getting any better. We've got PEF funding being used for things that it shouldn't be used for as well. I've been into schools in, in and around about Glasgow. The teachers are concerned about education at the moment, but we never actually hear or see, we'll probably get something thrown out during the summer to say this is a new policy we're doing, we've got a new bill coming through, <coughs> it's not a priority, independence is the only priority that I see coming. And you're right about Shona as well, when we look at Scotland's NHS, it has went right down in loads of areas as well. We had a debate the other day, yesterday on mental health, and all the parties united against the government on that one as well. So yeah, it, health is becoming the sort of a cluster at the moment, because I think Lots of parties are looking at Shona and saying, look, come on, it's time to move on, it's time to change. But John Swinney has been kind of um, invisible in the education portfolio, as far as I can see at the moment. We should say there's not an SNP member on the panel, and in both health and education, <laughs> the Scottish government would say that they're making progress. Can I, I don't, just as, as, as Annie was talking there, I was thinking about the tactics for the Greens, Ross. Given what you've said, that you're coming round to the idea that it might require a pro-independence majority here in 2021 for another independence referendum, does that cause you a bit of a problem? Because you, for, for that political ambition of yours to be achieved, the SNP need to do well, effectively. Uh, with all the goodwill in the world to the Greens, you're not going to, you're not going to achieve a uh, majority here on your own. So how, how, how does that factor in when you're doing the day-to-day business of scrutinising the government? In all honesty, and I'm not saying this is political spin, it doesn't. And education is a good example of that, where on the government's education bill that they're bringing forward probably in the next fortnight... <coughs> they are probably going to lose and it's because the Greens have led the opposition to that bill. The 
view that the SNP have taken on education is completely misguided. If you ask any teacher or any pupil in any school, they will not say that governance reform is their top priority. It's the last thing they want. They want resources. They want more staff back in schools just to reverse the staff that have been lost. We've led the opposition on that because we've listened to teachers and pupils and parents and we know what's wrong. Now, if I'm looking forward to the next election, the best thing I can do as a Green for independence, the best thing that I can do as a Green to improve education in Scotland and health in Scotland is to make sure that more Greens are elected. It's not my job to ensure that the SNP get re-elected. On the matter of, of the independence majority and that kind of simple arithmetic there, the best thing that I can do is ensure that the Greens gain more seats than the SNP lose at the next election. And given that, on education at least, we have been leading the opposition to them, education is the next crisis. I think Annie's right to say health's taking the focus at the moment. Education and John Swinney are going to be the next big problem for this government because they've seriously failed to deliver and they've asked the public to judge them on that. Now, if the public believe at the next election that the SNP failed to deliver on education, which they will, then... My hope is that they see that the Greens have been the one fighting for teachers to get a decent pay rise, to get the funding they need to put staff back in classrooms, and that we'll gain seats as a result of that. We're not doing it to gain seats, we're doing it to improve the quality of education. But you as a politician always do hope people recognise the work you do. Annie, what do you think is more important for the Conservatives now? Obviously, last year there was a breakthrough election for the Conservatives and it's largely being put down to the unionist position, mm-hmm. being strong against a second referendum. Do you think that message can continue to carry the party forward or do you need to branch out? Do you think public services and scrutinising that is now where you need to be? Or? Absolutely, and we are, at the moment, looking at our policies and what we're going to put forward in our manifesto in 2021. We are holding the government to account on our failures across across the board. And even just when you look at additional support needs in school as well, that's one of the things I've had parents come to me about, saying... What's happened with us? My child was getting seven hours additional support last year and it's now down an hour and a half. We are never going to get to the attainment gap or actually see education as our number one priority when we're taking that away. But, I mean, we are looking at the NHS. How do we make sure that's going to be there in 30 years' time to celebrate its 100th birthday? I'm looking at mental health strategy for children and young people, um, public health awareness on sort of other... So we are working on policies, and I think that's something that, yeah, and I think we would all put our hands up and say in 2016, we didn't really come to the table with policies. It was about holding the, the SNP to account over independence. But this time, I think you'll see a difference, and we've got people coming to us now and saying to us, this is what we want, Can you? this is the asks of us, and it's probably organisations that wouldn't naturally come to the Conservative Party with. Can you see a route for Ruth Davidson to become First Minister next time around? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Describe it to me. Um, I think we will, I don't think we'll get an overall majority. I think that would be very hard to do. I think we will be the biggest party in in the Scottish Parliament in 2021. I think when you see the policies we're bringing forward, we will get the public on our side and say that we are taking education seriously, we are taking health seriously. We want to grow the economy, we want to play, make Scotland the place to be and future-proof it for the generations ahead. If you don't have an overall majority, though, it would require cooperation yes. of other parties. Who do you think is a likely candidate there? Oh, that I can say at the moment. <laughs> I'm going to politely count the Greens out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that, there's a bombshell, a bombshell revelation for no, an exclusive do, for yeah, you, David. But I do, I do think that we are making headway. We saw that from last year's result as well. We, ha- we are going to be bringing out policies that we know the organisations out there are asking for, um, and we are listening, and I think that's the biggest thing at the moment. We are 
we're here, we're listening, and we're open to ideas and suggestions as to how we future-proof Scotland. Okay, we're, we're running out of time, and I just want to touch briefly on one other issue, uh, because uh, it, it didn't get as much coverage as it might have done otherwise, because it's been so busy this week, and I think it's important, especially for people that do my job. Uh, freedom of information, uh, there was a... I, I should declare an interest. There was a letter that several journalists sent to the Information Commissioner with concerns about how the Scottish Government was treating uh, freedom of information practice. I was one of the signatories to that letter, so I, I do have an interest here. It led to an investigation which reported this week, and uh, well, the journalists here felt vindicated, I have to say, because it, it did say that journalists as well as MSPs and MSPs researchers, have been treated differently. It had taken us longer to get information that we were legally entitled to and that there had been basically roadblocks put in our way. Um, the Scottish Government have uh, said that they accepted all the recommendations, said they're going to change or that they've already changed in some circumstances. Uh, Ross, what, what did you make of this report? I thought it was quite revealing that in response to it, when uh, Andy Whiteman, Green MSP, who's done work on freedom of information, asked the government the question, have you broken the law on this? Because it very much looks like they have. Or uh, who came up with this guidance in the first place? Because special advisors didn't decide to just go away and do this themselves. Who actually wrote the guidance that resulted in this practice where MSPs, journalists and parliamentary staff were treated differently? The government avoided the question. We should maybe explain that one of the other issues in this was special advisors who are uh, political appointments to the government that aren't elected uh, have been involved in the freedom of information process. Yeah, and it's been deeply frustrating. I mean, I've got one uh, freedom of information request that is now so long outstanding that's been appealed to the Information Commissioner that the government are just clearly delaying it. They've told the Information Commissioner that they've given me more information, which they've not. They gave me a corrected answer to a written question, which is completely separate to the FOI request I put in. It's farcical, and it shows a consistent lack of transparency and honesty from the government. And if you look at its particular departments that have the worst record on this, and John Swinney's education, team probably have by far the worst record of any team. Annie, the UK government, I have to say, can be a little frustrating in freedom of freedom of information as well. Uh, what, what did you make of this? I just think it just showed for what it is, the transparency isn't there with the Scottish government at the moment. And we are being singled out for asking questions that could potentially cause embarrassment to the, to the Scottish government and to the SNP as a whole. So, and I can understand journalists' frustrations when you're asking for that information because that we're legally entitled to that you're legally entitled to as, as am I I'm still waiting on that well, response as, any, as, as well is, from know. from uh, Humza on on an issue as well so and it is it's, it's going to cause embarrassment to the government they're not transparent I think what, what Ross said as well about when Andy Whiteman had says but are you breaking the law I think from the information that we've seen in the report quite clear there's something very wrong I don't think anyone's going to be pursuing them through the courts on it. Though. No, um, <laughs> it's an expensive job. I, I just, just as a, a finish, I will, I will say, because I think this is important actually, I've, I've been a journalist for 12 years in Scotland now, and there's been a noticeable change, I think, during that period, and it's not just the Scottish Government. Trying to get information out of Police Scotland, uh, even on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis at the minute, is practically impossible. Uh, and it's the same with councils, it's the same with the NHS. It is, it, it, there is hurdles being put in the way all the time, and I hope that maybe... I've got on my high horse here, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> Apologies. I hope that maybe this report might start changing some of that culture. Anyway, um, that's been a very interesting discussion. Uh, thank you for taking the time to come and speak to us. There's going to be a lot of fallout, I think, from the constitutional crisis that we've experienced in the last couple of days. And we'll be back next week to talk about anything that happens. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers.